0: What we are doing today and next week is we will be in Matthew 18 for two weeks as we prepare to launch into our new series on Proverbs, God's Wisdom for Gospel Living. Uh, So we'll be in Proverbs we're going to be looking at that probably 10 or 12 weeks through the summer and then jump into the gospel according to John for a good year year and a half Uh, taking breaks for the Christmas and stuff but that's where we'll be at so kids you're dismissed as they leave and you can go now I'm going to read scripture and then call up fellow uh, pastor elder Scott Hennay who's going to bring the first part of 18 to you this morning It's a privilege to serve with men in this church as other pastor elders who rightly handle the word of God. And uh, Scott has been diligently studying and learning and really growing in, in his role as pastor elder, and uh, we're just thankful for him, his family. And uh, we're in Matthew 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first book, New Testament. There's Bibles in the back. If you don't have, we're going to be reading verses 1 through uh, 14. Matthew 18, 1 through 14. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe verse 7 to the world for temptation to sin for it is necessary that temptations come but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin cut it off throw it away It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire and if your eye causes you to sin tear it out throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire, the hell of fire. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than ever. More than more than over the ninety nine that never went astray. Verse fourteen to close. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven, but the one of these little ones should perish. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I invite Pastor Elder Scott Hannay to come on up. Brother let me pray for you if I can. Father, thank you for this man. Thank you for the calling in his life. Thank you for the work of grace in his life. Thank you for uh, the time and preparation, Lord. Thank you for his um, and the way in which he looks at this seriously as he proclaims your word. Father, we pray as a congregation that we would be open to what your spirit would tell us today, and we pray that together we will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ for your glory. Father, we pray that your spirit would do a great work um, as, as Scott just pours out his heart and with uh, the stuff that you put in, may it bring glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Good morning, King's Chapel. It's always amazing what God does for you. Our praise team music this morning was talking about no fear and bringing glory to the cause of Christ. So hopefully, both of those things happen today. Uh, as Pastor Lou said, uh, we're taking a break from Nehemiah, finishing that and going into Proverbs, and we're in Matthew 18. And when he first asked me to do the passage on Matthew 18, I said, really, Matthew 18? He says, well, the first half, and it's like, okay, well, there's a ton of stuff there, so we'll get out of here by 3 o'clock today. (laughs) And like I said, there's a lot of stuff there, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, Matthew 18, um, this chapter of the Gospel of Matthew deals with our life as a community of believers. Jesus gives us several topics to consider how we see ourselves and how we're to consider each other. Today I'll be working on the first 14 verses of 18, and Pastor Lou next week will be working on the second half of the chapter, verses 25 to 35. That passage has to do with the unforgiving servant, and I will admit that I'm glad to be working with the first 14 verses. Lou will have his hands full with with that section. Uh, That passage is very important in the life of the church and gives us clear guidelines how we're to forgive and to what extent we are to forgive others for the cause of Christ. So as we do here in Kings, we go right into the word and we, and we look at um, not only just what that text says, but what it meant at the time. So to understand the scripture, we have to look at the context uh, where the disciples were, what Jesus was, was doing at that time. And so Jesus was preparing his disciples for his last days on earth. The disciples and he were in Capernaum, which is a town in in Israel, and Jesus had been giving them insights to his future in chapters 16 and 17. Jesus tells the disciples that he'll be going to Jerusalem to be killed, to suffer, and then to be raised again. And this caused much despair with the disciples. They didn't understand why this was going to happen. Then in 17, their despair turns to doubting. They do not understand that Jesus is saying that his future is not about today. It's about the, the spiritual kingdom which is to come. They're not, they're not grasping that end of it. So they were all focused on what would be accomplished on earth in their lifetime. They're expecting the kingdom to be uh, in their time today. They were focused and, um, on, on this thing and they were not hearing what he was saying. So finally in chapter 18 where we are today, the disciples are now disputing. They are talking about Who's going to be the greatest and what Jesus is going to assign them to as a duty or a title in the kingdom. And this is where we enter uh, our verses here, uh, right there at the beginning of chapter 18. So, it's not all about you. And that's what the disciples were not doing. So, we're going to be focusing on three parts our humility, our responsibility. And lastly, our focus. That's, that's where we're headed today in this, in this chapter. Um, before we get too judgmental on these disciples, they are much maligned uh, because we, we read Scripture today going, how did they not see that? Well, yeah, we do that too. Um, in the day, in Jewish society, your rank was very important. Who you were, who your father was, what family you came from was a big deal. You know, and and we understand that because it happens today too. So if you were an elder or a priest, a business owner or a day laborer, a fisherman or a sheep herder, your rank would decide how you would be treated and what influence you would have when talking to others. So these disciples were sitting around and weighing how they would be treated, how Jesus had worked with them, and how that was going to bear out in this new kingdom. And so this is where we enter uh, verse 1. And these disciples are talking. To see the screen, I put my binoculars on. (laughs) At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, they were sitting there talking, and Jesus was just a a short distance off. Jesus is God. He knew what they were talking about. They thought they were having a little discussions among themselves. So they were having this full-blown discussion about who was going to have the best job, who was going to have the best titles, and... Who was going to be more important? And Jesus, knowing what they were doing, was near them, and was just waiting for the question. You can almost hear or see Jesus cringing, rolling his eyes, and going, oh boy, here we go, because their argument had to hurt. He's been talking to them for quite a while, explaining to them in detail, but they just didn't get it. They hadn't grasped the stories, they hadn't understood the parables, and They didn't understand that this kingdom was not going to be earthly. They were expecting that he was going to be a king, he was going to crush the Romans, set up a new mighty city, and that they were going to be part of this structure. So Jesus takes the situation, hears their question, and responds to them with humility. He doesn't show frustration. He doesn't blast them with shouting and a stern rebuke. He sat down. And he called a child that was in the area to him and set the child right in the middle of him. And then we have verse three, where he says, And calling to him a child, he put in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So see yourself as a disciple. You're just deciding who is going to be the greatest and Jesus lays this on you. The statement without shouting should have seriously shifted their concept from their focus on themselves and their position in Christ. Jesus is teaching them with humility to be humble. The disciples' level of pride and arrogance was completely sinful. They were completely off track. Yet Jesus humbly takes their offense and turns it and puts their mind in the correct position. He's saying you must turn, you must change, you must repent and become a child. So what is true humility? C.S. Lewis, the great writer, provided us with a few good examples and insights into this attribute. He once said, if anyone wished to acquire humility, I can tell you the first step to recognize that he is proud. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking thinking of yourself less. There are many ways to define humility. You've probably read books on it or seen books on it. It's a whole topic. But what matters is how God desires us to be humble. If we place our priorities correctly, then acting acting in humility is not a large problem. If we position God and others ahead of our own needs and priorities, then our life as a Christian is marked with humility. Our carnal heart, who we are in our, in our birth, will always seek to put I first and decisions and choices that will benefit me first. It is the Holy Spirit's influence in our heart that moves us to change that priority and put others first. Jesus is clearly defining to the disciples what it is to be humble. He's saying that power, prestige, influence, and rank are not measurements of great, greatness in his kingdom. It is the exact opposite. Our ability to humble ourselves, serve others, this is the definition of a person who has changed their heart and is following Christ. Jesus' is, is an example of a child, to set this example to disciples, is key. In the Aramaic, in the Aramaic language, the word child and servant are the same, same word. What Jesus is saying to them is, in order to be great, you must also serve. You must be a child and be a servant as well. The disciples needed to change and become like children so that they could serve. So when Christ is asking us to be childlike, he's not asking us to be childish. There's a huge difference. Childlike embodies all the pleasant qualities of children. They're trusting They embrace dependence. They adore their parents for a while. (laughs) Love without conditions and have time for others. Childlike, childish behavior, on the other hand, is all the little unsavory characteristics of these little blessings from heaven. We know that children are immature. They whine. They cry and laugh at the same time. They throw temper tantrums and they stomp their foot and say no. There is a clear difference here. Jesus is asking the disciples to be childlike, but not to be childish. He wants maturity from us. So here we find Jesus still working on this issue in the minds of the disciples. We humans require repetition. That's how teachers teach us. Year in, year out, the the same principles. Jesus is doing the same thing. Our sinful hearts reject humility as a As a natural situation and servanthood is not our first choice we naturally want to improve ourselves and and go from point a to point b in our own level of importance we can clearly see this in our tendency with our sports programs every conference league division has a published rankings who is better we have entire tv stations (coughs) espn dedicated to telling us why this guy's better and why this woman's better and why this team will clearly beat this team next weekend. We have people that dedicate their lives to figuring out the statistics, to f- telling us why that's going to occur, only to find out on Saturday that that didn't happen. <laughs> this proves that we humans crave attention, no kidding, and we need to be number one. If um, you ever seen a t-shirt about the glory of the silver medal, that doesn't exist. Um... We focus on number one. That's, that's, that, that's our clear and obvious goal. So let's take another, another example, another look at what childlike means. A child has humility. A child has and knows that they are in a dependent state. They can't live on their own. They have to have somebody to help and protect them. And a child has trust. Trust and dependence go together. It is these qualities that Jesus is asking his disciples to grasp, to fully understand. He's asking You were all children once. You know what that's like. I'm asking you to be that way with me. In your relationship with me, please be childlike. Don't ask for a job. Don't ask for a title. Don't ask me to put your name on the front of a church. Just love me and love my people. He's really trying to get their mind off who they are and what he wants them to be. Humility is not an inborn quality. We don't, we don't, come to this world with humility ready to go. It's a characteristic that we learn and we develop. Our our innate situation is pride, and humility is the antidote to pride. The root cause of many sins is pride, and this is why humility is such a powerful concept. In this discourse with the disciples, Jesus is attempting to show them the definition of success also. They're looking at jobs. They're looking at titles. They're looking at what's coming in the future, and these guys started as fishermen, most of them, and they're looking, where am I going? Where's my career going here? Uh, but he's making a point to them that it's not about themselves. This is not about them. It's the same in our world today. We're all trying to define what success is in our life. Success and greatness and ranking and first go as a package. My grandfather was a businessman in Westerlo, and he spent most of his life in a small town uh, building a business with his, with his family. He was a Christian man, and he learned many of life's lessons through the Word, church, and experiences in business. He gave a three-by-five card to my father, and my father in turn passed it to me. It was his attempt to communicate what the priorities of of success would be. And these things are very elemental, very practical, but I think after you hear those, you'll you'll see where... He was going with that. I'm just going to read right off here. Success by Dwight C. Hanning. To be able to carry money without spending it. To bear an injustice without retaliating. To be able to do one's duty when critical eyes are watching. To be able to keep at a job until it's finished when someone would brush you aside. To be able to do work and let others receive the recognition for it. To be able to accept criticism without letting it whip you. To lift those who would push you down. To love when hate is all around you. To follow God when others put detour signs in your path. And to have the peace of heart and mind because you've given God your best. This is the true measure of success. It's personal. It, um, it's meaningful. It's meaningful. But there's a lot of wisdom in there. And, you know, he received that from places where he, um, like I said, from the word, from from real life, from his life situation. Don't retaliate. Don't hate. Let others take the credit. Stay at your job. These are things that Jesus wanted wanted from his disciples. He knew that the trials that they would face in the days of the early church would be these situations and that they would fail unless they learned to be humble and depend on him our society today pulls us in the completely opposite direction from these things all the messaging that we heard that we hear that we see is about me i i can do it philippians 4:13 says i can do all things through christ who strengthens me this verse takes the focus off i and shifts it to christ I can do all things because Jesus Christ strengthens me. This simple phrase, this little shift, changes the whole balance. We can still be successful. We can still do things. But it's because of Christ. And that is humility. So our responsibility. This uh, takes us in a different direction here. In verse 5, As Lou read, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Ooh, yeah. Um, That is not unclear. Jesus is placing a high degree of importance on how we should be treating children. And the warning of pending punishment is off the chart. Jesus is saying that if we harm a child or lead a child into sin, it's better than we have a 500-pound stone placed on our neck and to go for a swim. I was a diver in high school, familiar with weight belts and being in the water, there's a funny thing about that. You go straight to the bottom. And I can assure you that what he was, what he was showing to the disciples, that this was a one-way ticket. This is serious. It's better that this happened than you do that to one of my children. It's a word picture that they understood. In, in the ancient times, you didn't go in the ocean. You, if you went in a boat, it was a fearful situation. You didn't swim in the ocean. People went in the ocean, didn't come back. So this, this word picture, this illustration is something that's going to bring fear and attention. Jesus continues to work on our humility in these verses, asking us to pay attention and to care for children. In the ancient world, children were property. They were not to be elevated and, and, and put on a pedestal. It was the be seen and not heard treatment. Jesus is elevating their importance and showing the disciples the heart of a child is open and humble and ready to receive the gospel. In verses 7 and 9, woe to the world for temptations for sin. It is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown in the eternal fire. Again, he's using strong word pictures for the disciples to understand where he's going. He, he wants to warn them that whoever causes this little one to stumble shall be liable to him. They are responsible to him. This warning carries a heavy responsibility. Um, in Matthew 18:7, as you see it there, um, the issue of stumbling blocks comes up. In the New American Standard version of the Bible, this verse reads, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man whom th- the stumbling block comes. The ESV version says temptation to sin, and the NASB says the word stumbling blocks. They, they treat it the same. So the Greek word here is skandaliso. It's where we get the word scandal from. Jesus is using this term stumbling block to say that sin will always be there. It's always going to be lurking. It's going to be in your path. It's going to trip you up. These stumbling blocks can originate from the world, from our sinful nature, or even from the fellowship of believers. The stumbling blocks and sin will be ever present in our lives. So in verse 7, Jesus is teaching the disciples that stumbling blocks are coming and they must be ready for them. He pronounces woe, which is basically a curse, if they contribute to the problem and lead others into sin and temptation and crashing over these these tripping blocks, stumbling blocks. All temptation invites believers to try and partially be loyal to God. Partially is just not a great word. Partially is just halfway. It's not any which way. It's not 100%. It's just partial. Jesus is saying you can't do this. Jesus is saying make a choice and implores us to choose full life in him. The responsibility of not being a stumbling block to someone else is a concern for Christians. It is for us today. Jesus is clearly saying that we're not to engage in activities if it'll lead another into temptation. Our world today teaches us a lot about freedom, our rights, our God-given, written, you know, legal rights and that we can do whatever we want and we really don't care about what anybody else thinks. We've heard ourselves say it. I've said it. It's, it's, it's what our society in America, you know, it's all about our rights. But are responsible to others and to children, we are responsible to what they think. We are not able to take that position of not caring. While this fact does not seem fair, Fair doesn't really matter. Jesus has declared that we do have that responsibility. So we have to weigh our actions daily. We have to put this extra filter on our, on our mind and our heart to, ha- to have a caring attitude that is God-honoring in what we're doing. If we're presented with an activity that might tempt another person to sin, then we have to say no because we are responsible to them. Even if that freedom and right, that, even if we have the freedom and right to that activity, we still have to say no, to protect the weaker brother or sister for the cause of Christ. Leviticus 19:4 says, "You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before a blind man, but you shall refer, you shall revere your God." So just think about what that verse looks like. Don't swear to deaf guy. Don't stick your foot out in front of a blind man. Come on. Do you see it? It's just plain mean. Who would do that? Jesus is saying that our contribution to someone else's temptation to sin is just plain mean. We shouldn't do it. If our heart is humble and He's placed in our heart the position of others where it should be, then we should not want to do anything that would hurt that individual. We must learn to internalize that responsibility to make it part of who we are. We are not only responsible to Christ for our actions, but we are also responsible to each other. And that's a big deal. That's, that's a big deal. It's something, again, it's not, we're not born with that. It's something that we learn to do. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we take this responsibility and, and bring it inside? Must we forgo all of our freedoms so we don't cause another person to stumble you know, we have to be super careful, I would say no. We have to consider each situation that we're in and the people that we're with. And a a certain thing at a specific time may be possible. If a certain activity with a specific person could cause them to stumble, then we should not do it. On another day, and another group, and another activity, that may be perfectly okay. The key here is being sensitive to the needs of others, knowing who our brothers are, knowing who our sisters are, knowing what their needs are, and being aware of those. First Corinthians nine eight. But to take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This this verse defines exactly where we're supposed to be, the way to use our freedom should not become a temptation or a cause to entice someone else to sin. We have to look at ourselves and our actions closely in this context. And this is, again, I think I've said a filter. We have to put that filter on our thought process before we do something, taking that half a second to go, yes, I can, but should I? This is a daily concern. It's something we have to make part of our life. So in verse eight, it's already up there. Yep, (laughs) Um, Jesus is now getting very pointed. He's getting very pointed about sin. If your hand or your foot causes you to uh, to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Ouch! Sin is a cancer. We find if it finds us, we have to deal with it to that degree. We have to flee or deal with it, one or the other. Jesus is saying, get rid of it. Cut it off. The surgical option. If you have it and it has you, then cut it off. Verse 9b, it is better that you enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. Again, this this is, you know, he's not mincing words. He's saying sin is awful. It's corrupting. It's better that you live your life without it than you try to build a way and make a way to live with it. Jesus is saying, don't mess with it. Don't wait. Run and stay away. Last week in Nehemiah 13, Pastor Lou was telling us about the Israelites and the stumbling blocks that they had. Nehemiah returned to find his people in mixed marriages with foreigners, not supporting the Levites, and not honoring the Sabbath. Just a few years earlier, Nehemiah had left and they were faithfully doing these things. They had committed so in writing. One of the worst things that he found was they were marrying foreigners again and bringing uh, idol worship and, and their culture into, into their country. This, re- this relationship was pulling away the Israelites from, from God honoring uh, institutions and practices. These these Israelites were playing with fire and they got burnt. These foreigners had corrupted their obedience to God's law. So how do we do the same things in our lives? What vices and addictions do we have that we keep close at hand? How do they pull us away from our mission to live out uh, God's laws? Let's not focus on the obvious vices. Alcohol, drugs, drugs other 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 vices. Work, sports, money, bad relationships will pull us just as far, just as long. I'll take one look at a classic example. After take a drink. Art Schleester. Back in the eighties he was a blue chip NFL quarterback, pro kid from high school, top rated He was drafted into the NFL. This was one of those guys that was going to have his life super easy. He was never going to want for money. He had one problem. Art was into sports gambling. Not small time, big time. Art tried for many years to run from his addiction, and many team owners and coaches and friends kind of covered it up because he was a good guy and he was so awesome, and they enabled that. In 1994, after declaring that he had conquered his addiction, Mr. Schlichter moved to Las Vegas. I know, right? Las Vegas, really. The sports betting capital of the world. This, uh, this move was for a new job, and he had told friends and family that he had conquered his, his addiction, that he could handle it. Art didn't last more than a few weeks. He, his gambling led to an FBI arrest and sting operation, a divorce, and an eventual 10-year prison sentence. Art was heard to say one time that his gambling addiction had taken everything he had ever loved and ever owned. Art had never heard the words of this verse, if gambling causes you to sin, cut it off. Art always thought that he was a winner, that he would be able to conquer the odds, that he was in control of the gambling. The truth is that Art was never in control. Gambling was in control. The sin ruled his life from his early days of high school until the day he went into prison. The story' not, not unique. Sin is completely addictive, and it takes many forms. Jesus implores us to focus on him first, and when addiction proves that addiction proves that we love sin more, God does not want us to share our attention, but to give it fully to him, and desires our full focus and, and, and what He wants from our heart. So speaking of focus, let's move to our third point today, focus. In the last part of this chapter, uh, Jesus offers the parable of the lost sheep. I'm just going to read it here. So what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices more over it, than, over the ninety nine that never went astray, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus is again pointing to the sincere love of individual human beings and for those that are lost, the weak, the marginalized, the ones that need help. I have the images in my mind of these of the Earthquake victims in Nepal, you probably saw it on CNN, you know, Nepal was ravaged by earthquakes earlier, uh, about a month ago, and over 9,000 people perished. But as a percentage of population, 9,000 is a small number, but we don't think about that. We as humans immediately start searching for the lost. We start searching for the trapped we start searching for the survivors people from around the globe search and rescue teams the the the, the minute that that happened started to make plans to go to help to find so so we know that this is in us and then three days later people were digging through rubble with their own fingers bleeding they found one the baby boy that had survived for three days by itself you see those images, and that's, that's the same feeling of what Christ is doing. He's looking for that one. Yes, there's, there's 10,000 people in the square of the city in tents. They're safe. They're out there in the rubble, which is dangerous business, in, in and amongst collapsed buildings and collapsing buildings, looking for one, looking for that one. To me, this is the picture of our Father and angels in heaven, When one human being is rescued by the love and sacrifice of Jesus, it's hard to imagine that the God of the universe is looking for one amongst the billions of people that are. He's looking for one. But this passage says that it is the heart of God that none should perish. Verse 14 So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. So let's look back to this parable, and we're going to see three things. God cares for the lost, and He is the great shepherd. Two, God and all of heaven rejoice over the finding of one lost sheep. And three, God wants us to follow His example. The metaphor of sheep as human as human beings is pretty accurate. If you know anything about sheep, they're not the brightest animal in the world. They fall down, they struggle to get up, they always follow the crowd. They can't cut their own crazy hair. And they easily forget where home is and get totally lost. If you let that sink in a little bit, you can definitely see the sheep-human connection. So in Israel, sheep were everywhere. They were on every hillside. People earned their living tending sheep. So Jesus' use of this analogy was familiar both to the commoners in the crowd and scholars alike. The Bible is full of references to God and the, God the Father as a shepherd. Psalms 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. And again in Psalms 78, 72, David writes, with an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. David saw God as his shepherd, as a guide, as a protector. So if you're searching for a way to conceptualize God, to understand who he is, it's a great way to look at it, that he's our heavenly father, that he's there to protect, to watch over, to make sure that we don't go too far astray. So number two, God in all of heaven rejoices over the finding of one. Jesus is making it very clear to his disciples God's heart and desire to seek and save those that are lost. The Bible offers us many passages on this theology of this world, life, sin, God, and eternal life. But this one verse is kind of the bottom line, the overarching statement that clearly explains God loves everyone and clearly desires that none should suffer separation from his love and protection. So if you're looking for a verse that's full of hope and promise, this is a great one. God loves, us as, loves all of us like a shepherd and does not want any of us to be lost to him. This parable is speaking to two different groups And that's why Jesus used parables, because everybody relates to it in their own way. To the disciples, Jesus is saying that God rejoices in the salvation of lost sinners. He wanted his disciples to emulate his heart, his compassion, his focus for the lost. The lost can refer to those that need to be saved. They can refer to believers that have wandered away from their faith. That's what sheep do. They wander away. So there is work to be done for the shepherd each and every day. To that other group, Jesus is speaking to, to those that have not yet found the Savior. He's saying, I have good news, the gospel. My Father's looking for you. I am looking for you. And we offer safety and protection. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross provided the way that we could be found and turn to a relationship with the Father. Sheep crave being in the flock. They want to be together. And we humans have that same internal craving. We want a sense of community. We want to be together. Our communal bond with each other is made stronger when we share that bond with the shepherd or, or the father. We here at King's Chapel, our values, EIC, printed right on the wall out there, eternity, identity, and community, point to this fact. We are eternal beings, and we are created by God to glorify Him. And our truest and best identity is found in Jesus Christ. Our lives here on earth are meant to be lived out in community. We are called to gather together, fellowship, so that our life in Christ is strengthened and protected. Our community should also have the same thought as a group for the cause of the individual, for the one that's lost. This parable of the lost sheep should create the same focus for the weak and the downcast in our society. It is the purpose of God's church in Glenmont to extend our arms and to welcome everyone. This means more than unlocking the front doors, it means going back home tonight, going back to work, school, whatever we're doing on Monday, and continuing on mission to see that those that are looking for Christ see his image, to see your testimony, and to see to see God through you. We are called to be on mission every single day. So God wants us to follow his example. In this parable, Jesus is showing to his disciples what it is to have the Father's heart, similar to the concept of being fishers of men when he called them first to be disciples. He wants them to be looking for the weak, He wants to be looking for the burdened and the lost. He is pushing them not to be content with the 99, but to continue to work, to go and find that one that's lost, to have the passion to go search, to dig through the rubble with your bare hands until you bleed. Jesus was also teaching the disciples not to be self-preoccupied, to foster a mental focus for the lost, thinking of others first, because remember where we started, they were thinking about nothing from themselves. This focus requires nurturing and training. It also requires empowerment from the Holy Spirit. It's our human nature to be satifi- satisfied with good enough. That was, you know, I, I did pretty good. And we, like sheep, do tend to be a little bit lazy. But Jesus is asking his disciples don't do that. Don't be satisfied. Don't be lazy. Seek the lost every day. And no. Yeah. There we go. John Calvin, I have a quote there from him. By his own example, Christ now exhorts us to honor the weak and lowly brethren, for he descended from heaven to be their redeemer, to save not only them, but even the dead, those who were lost. And it is unworthy to reject in our pride those for whom the Son of God did do much, for they are not to be assessed according to their own virtues, but according to the grace of Christ. There's a lot in that. This is important. A lost person is not to be assessed by his own virtues or the lack thereof, but according to the grace of Christ. And so we should desire to see that lost person recovered to him. This view should really change our thinking and, and how we see people every day. It's very easy to be jaded or calloused to those that have done wrong things, that have put themselves in a position, that have, quite honestly, not lived up to what they should have been doing. They just, they, just, they blew it. But God is saying, don't, don't look at it that way. God wants our hearts to be concerned instead for them, to see what he sees in them, not what we see, and, and to seek them and show them God's love. So the gospel story jumps right out of this uh, quote from Calvin, and he's asking us that if we've been found dead in sin and have been found undeserving of a relationship with God, it is only through Jesus that we are redeemed and reconciled back to him. His sacrifice permits us to experience eternal life with God, and the grace of Christ determines our true value here on earth, not what we think, what God thinks. Second Corinthians eight nine in closing encapsulates this this concept that Calvin wrote about: for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that you by his property. Poverty might become rich. We can follow Christ's example of humility to sacrifice himself on the cross and redeem us. And this gospel message to us is a perfect display of humility. He had all the riches and glory in heaven, he had a relationship with the Father and Holy Spirit, yet he came here, left all that, humbled himself to become a baby sacrificed himself to serve others, there is no better display of humility that we could ever consider or follow. So what I'd like to do is pray and close, invite the the band to come up. Join me in prayer, please. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you could bring us here to King's Chapel to discuss this passage in Matthew. We uh, find uh, messages on humility and we understand that you're asking us to change our heart, to change our perspective on how we see uh, others in our world that, uh, that, uh, that we don't always focus on, that we sometimes don't have a concern for. We're, we're hearing you asking us to change. And we ask, Lord, that as we spend time now in prayer, as we spend time in, in praising you, that you would work on our hearts, work on our attitudes, and, and change us as you see fit. And uh, we ask this in your name. Amen.